Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Thursday, February 2nd. Amanda Borchel Dan here with our U.S. correspondent, Jacob Magid, and our New York correspondent, Luke Tress. Hello to you both. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. So nice to have you two with me. We have a lot to cover, so let's get cracking. Jacob is here with more follow-ups on the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's trip to the region and specifically the Palestinian Authority. And he's here to tell us that Israelis are coming one step closer to the U.S. visa waiver program. Among other things, Luke is here and will share a glam rocker's takeaway from a United Nations Holocaust event. But first, a word from our sponsor. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachek's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachuklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. And we're back. Before we dive in, I have an update from tonight. Israeli Air Force warplanes carried out sorties in the Gaza Strip in response to a rocket attack on southern Israel hours before dawn. The IDF said its jets bombed a site where the Hamas terror group stores chemicals that are used to make missiles, as well as a facility where the group manufactures weaponry. Luke, let's turn to you. You brought us the story on Wednesday, yesterday, about the COI Elimination Act that is being reintroduced to the U.S. Congress. Now, the COI stands for the Commission of Inquiry that the United Nations is carrying out against Israel. So I assume tonight's airstrikes would be investigated, for example. What brought the bill on this time and who brought it? So this act is a replica of another bill that was introduced last year. Actually, two bills were introduced last year. They were identical, one in the House and one in the Senate. And they seek to eliminate the commission of inquiry into Israel to bar the U.S. from funding it and to fight anti-Israel bias at international forums. It was introduced by Greg Stube, who's a congressman, a Republican congressman from Florida. 17 Republicans have signed on so far. It's, it's still, it was introduced a couple of weeks ago. The last version of this bill, which failed to pass, had 119 co-sponsors, so a lot more support. And it was from both sides of the aisle, including some prominent Democrats. And the uh, Senate bill last year had 13 co-sponsors, also from both sides of the aisle. So this bill was reintroduced to to combat this commission of inquiry, which is seen as very harshly critical of Israel. One of the members of the inquiry had made some anti-Semitic comments last year, and he remains in his position. 
So they're they're trying to defund it, which is which is an issue because the U.S. feels that it needs to fund the U.N. The, the U.S. is the biggest contributor to the U.N., 22 percent of the budget. But the U.S. is also funding stuff it doesn't like at the U.N., such as these anti-Israel measures, this and, and a couple others. There's another U.N. investigation against Israel that's very one-sided, Israel's supporters say. And that investigator also made uh, anti-Semitic comments, and they, they remain in place. So it's just beginning its journey, I assume, Luke. Uh, how much longer until we know whether it passes this time or not? It could be a while. Actually, the bill's sponsor fell off a ladder at his house last week and was badly injured and unable to talk about it. So, so we'll need to get some updates for him. We wish him well. Okay, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in the region this week. We heard about the Egypt and Israel legs of a trip earlier on uh, previous daily briefings. On Tuesday, Blinken also met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. So, Jacob, what were the headlines that came out of that meeting or meetings in the Palestinian Authority in general? Yeah, so I think there were a few policy achievements that could come through this meeting, given that Blinken and the Biden administration's just their focus is elsewhere. Um, so we appeared to largely be aimed at not really um, angering the Palestinian Authority, which is already quite exacerbated with the U.S. over its lack of pressure on Israel. And Palestinian officials hear Biden's, Biden administration statements about its opposition to settlements and home evictions and demolitions and things of that sort, but lament that the U.S. isn't doing enough to stop it. Um, Blinken did use this meeting with uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas to condemn these these quote unquote unilateral moves, and also express condolences for the what he the innocent civilians that have been killed, Palestinian innocent civilians killed in the, the various military um, operations from the IDF over the past year, which was somewhat noteworthy. And then um, also made a point to criticize the Palestinian reactions to some of the, the the recent terror attack over the weekend in East Jerusalem and kind of push both sides to take urgent steps to address this uh, this uh, escalation of violence. I think that became the real focus of this trip. Um, there might have been other focuses beforehand, but with the, the weekend of violence, this everything became a lot more urgent. And there was an effort to kind of push these urgent steps that they weren't really specific on in public statements, but he did say that he was going to have two of his senior aides stay behind and focus on these urgent steps that will help de-escalate violence. And what I what I was able to confirm was that one of these steps, at least, um, that was talked about behind closed doors, was this plan by the U.S. to boost the Palestinian Authority's security presence in the northern West Bank, which is, I think, if we've talked about in previous podcasts, a place where a lot of violence has been stemming. A lot of the the new terror groups that have sprouted out and, and carrying out attacks throughout the West Bank have been coming from Jenin and Nablus, where the Palestinian Authority has really lost a lot of its control. And now this U.S. plan is basically to train and establish establish and train two SWAT teams um, in both one in Nablus and one in uh, Jenin that will be through the Palestinian civil police. This is slightly different than the Palestinian Authority Security Forces, Forces, which is a paramilitary organization. The civil police are seen as obviously police, and they're less, I think, they have a better chance of being successful in carrying out arrests in these areas because they're not seen as this foreign military force that's uh, just allied with Israel. 
And the hope is that this um, this force will have a better chance of reestablishing PA presence in the northern West Bank, and then and then lead to a uh, scenario where the, then the Palestinian security forces can also be more effective in their job. So this is one idea that came up. It's been pushed for quite a few months by the U.S., and I think now it's getting the clout of Secretary Blinken, and he's being the one that's um, pushing it forward. But the Palestinian Authority is still not totally gung-ho on the plan. That's the, the, the feeling that I got from conversations over the past day. I think there's concern that there's no commitment from Israel to still cease these um, operations into these areas. They feel that that as long as those operations continue, no matter whether it's the civil police or the security forces on the Palestinian side, they won't have the legitimacy to act. Um, so we'll see where this, this proposal goes. But that was one thing that the U.S. has been pushing and, and staying on the ground in order to see, hopefully see it through. Really fascinating. Thanks for that, Jacob. Luke, you recently caught up with former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett in New York. And when he said he'll come back to politics, did he do it in an Arnold Schwarzenegger accent? I'm kind of kidding, but what was his overall message for the New York audience? He did say, I'll be back. It was not in a Schwarzenegger accent, unfortunately. So he said a few things. He spoke to a a lot of New York Jews at a synagogue the other night. So he confirmed he will come back to politics, which he hasn't outright said before after kind of stepping off stage last year. He really urged U.S. Jews to not give up on Israel. He said, don't give up on Israel, despite what's going on with the government. If you don't like it, this will pass and and we're family and you should continue to support Israel and be proud of Israel. He said no one's going to touch the LGBTQ community in Israel also, which has been a big issue for U.S. Jews with Smoltrich and Avi Moz, who are both openly anti-LGBTQ. And um, he, he expressed fears for Israel. He said, the, dis- the discourse is so toxic. I'm worried about it. We had two ancient states of Israel that didn't make it past their eighth decade. And we're in the middle of our eighth decade now. And we need to successfully get past this. So he kind of wanted to calm people down. But he also said, I'm not going to dispel all your worries because I'm concerned also. So the campaign has begun. We'll go to a short break. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. Now, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we're back. Jacob, as one who is married to an Israeli, I was really happy to hear that we're one step closer to joining the U.S.'s visa waiver program. But is my celebration premature? 
No, I think uh, there's a decent amount to be excited about. This is a, a pretty big hurdle that Israel passed this past week um, in the U.S. announcing that the rejection rate of Israeli visa applications during the previous fiscal year fell below 3% for the first time, which is a, ma- a major criteria for entry into the U.S. visa waiver program, meaning the ability to travel to the U.S., from Israel without uh, a visa. You can come for up to, I believe, 90 days as a tourist or even as a business person. And that's the goal. And that's what has, that's been elusive goal for a a lot of years now. Now, passing this, uh, this hurdle has been a problem in previous years, largely due to bureaucratic mistakes that people have been making on their applications. These are oftentimes populations who aren't used to filling out applications on the internet, um, and therefore making just sort of minor mistakes, but end up leading to, to just, uh, refusal rates, uh, climbing much higher than in other countries. But uh, the U.S. Embassy and the Foreign Ministry over the past year launched this public awareness campaign in um, helping people fill out their forms more correctly, um, and it managed to apparently succeed in, in dropping the number below 3%. And um, now, now that that's done, now they've done so, and while Israeli officials feel that they've crossed the finish line, I think uh, Foreign Minister Eli Cohen tweeted something around the lines of, we did it, um, the U.S., which quite uh, angered the U.S. Embassy because there really is this feeling that they're and they're adamant that there's still some work to do um, and not a lot of time to do so. Now, Israel still has to pass three pieces of legislation and make a public legislative and legal commitment, as, as the embassy puts it, to ensuring the entry rights for all American citizens and doing this all by September 30th of this coming year, of this year in 2023, which is the end of the fiscal year. That's according to the embassy. Now, this latter obligation um, regarding this uh, f- uh, free travel uh, for uh, all Americans has been a sticking point for the U.S. because There's been a concern about the treatment of Arab and Palestinian Americans at Ben-Gurion Airport, where they often deal with either racial profiling or long wait times and occasional deportations upon declaring particularly that they're going to either the West Bank or Gaza. And many of them have chosen to just fly to Amman instead of going through the border, but then have going through Ben-Gurion, but then have to go through extra hours crossing the border and extra fees. So the Biden administration has been insistent that this can't continue. And uh, U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Tom Nides, his favorite line is that a U.S. citizen in Detroit or an Arab-American in Detroit should be able to go on a plane, arrive at Ben-Gurion and visit their, their relative in Bethlehem and vice versa. So that's the expectation from the U.S. And they really feel that this they will not allow Israel to enter the visa waiver program if this doesn't happen. Um, and part of that, this decision by Secretary Blinken when he was in town this week was to meet with civil society leaders on both sides. But on the, on the Palestinian side, he specifically chose to meet with Palestinian Americans because there was this goal to alleviate concerns about whether this, this, these issues were going to be addressed if Israel enters the visa waiver program. And they feel that they were able to alleviate a lot of their concerns with that meeting. Um, now, again, we still have uh, until September 30th to pass those three pieces of legislation, but that also includes various computer changes and information sh- information sharing systems and all this technical stuff that needs to be implemented and then tested. So it's, according to the U.S. and even to uh, some Israeli officials I speak with, there is it's a real-time crunch and it's not 100% sure, but I would say that there's a lot of optimism in Jerusalem right now. 
I wonder what is harder to get all of this through or to actually uh, receive an appointment at the U.S. Embassy here in Jerusalem, which is, whoa, a Herculean task right now. I think it might be the latter. I think it might be the latter. <laughs> I think you could be right. Okay, Luke, uh, turning back to you, you know, it's not every day that you meet a glam rock idol and definitely maybe not at the United Nations. So what was Gene Simmons doing there? So Simmons, who was a frontman for KISS, the band, his mom was a Holocaust survivor. He's Israeli. He was born in Haifa, lived there as a kid, but grew up mostly in New York. So he was at this UN event for Holocaust Remembrance Day last week. There, there was a Yad Vashem exhibit and the UN Secretary General and the Israeli ambassador toured it. And then they had this, this memorial event for the Holocaust and Simmons was there. So I caught up with him after it. And he thought it was boring. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not just him, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a rock star. And I think a diplomatic event was not his style. So he said this was well-intentioned, but it was boring. He said, we need to uh, connect the Holocaust to other tragedies, which is his, his idea for raising awareness. He suggested con connecting it to tragedies like Ukraine and Armenia, which is controversial because... A lot of Jewish people see this as a Jewish tragedy. For instance, when Zelensky tried to connect the Holocaust to the war in Ukraine, a lot of Israeli Knesset members got upset about it last year. And then he said he suggested doing a Never Again music festival to raise awareness and, and uh, raise funds for Yad Vashem and other organizations. So coming from this, this media background, he said it's, it's more important who says stuff than what they're saying. So he said, we need rock stars, we need entertainers doing this, we should have a music festival, U2 needs to get involved. And um, so, yeah, this, this, is, this is a rock star's perspective on Holocaust awareness and combating anti-Semitism. So Yad Vashem, take note. Okay, Jacob, Luke, thank you for joining me. And I want to urge our listeners to listen to our first episode of What Matters Now, a new weekly podcast from the Times of Israel, drilling down on one issue that affects Israel and the Jewish world now. What Matters Now. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Amanda. Bye, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.